Hello, this is Alex Granado, Senior Reporter for Education NC, and you're listening to Ed Talk. Today, I'm sitting here in advance of the November elections, which will be just a few short weeks from now, with John Dynan. He is a professor of politics at Wake Forest University, and he's here to talk with me today about the six amendments to the state constitution that will be on the ballot. John, thank you for being here. It's good to be here. And uh, so, John, there's been a lot of controversy and discussions around these six amendments. Um, Some people say that they're not sure what exactly they're going to do, that they do more than they say they're going to do. Can we start by having you just kind of give us a quick overview of what the amendments are and kind of the one-sentence summary, and then we'll delve deeper into it? Sure, I can do that because it is unusual to have six amendments on a North Carolina ballot in one year. It goes back to 1970 since voters have actually faced as many as six constitutional amendments on the ballot in one year. So the six that are on the ballot this year, and they are are not numbered on the ballot, but they still will appear in, in an order. The first one would protect the right to hunt and fish. The second one would expand protections for victims of crime. The third one would lower the maximum allowable income tax rate from 10% to 7%. A fourth one would require photo identification for voters at the polls. A fifth one would change the way in which midterm vacancies on judiciaries are filled. It would take that from the governor, who would currently fill vacancies on the courts that come midterm, and would move it to the legislature and other actors. The sixth one deals with the Board of Elections and Ethics Enforcement, and it changes in two ways. One is, right now, there's an odd number of members, and this would create an even number of members with Republicans and Democrats having an equal number of appointees, and it would reduce the ability of the governor to have control over those and would move to the legislature the appointment of those members. Okay, and since these amendments were you know, decided on and put on the ballot, there have been some changes to some of them, and we'll get to that later. But first, let's talk a little bit more in-depth about the different amendments and kind of what they might mean beyond what they seem to apparently mean. Um, and uh, I guess we can uh, just kind of go through in the order that you went through and, and talk about that. So let's talk about the First Amendment that will appear on the ballot, and that is it protects the right to hunt, fish, and harvest wildlife. These, this amendment is, is part of a national movement, and basically the last two decades, 20 states have added similar amendments to their state constitutions. There's nothing like this in the federal constitution. If we look at our federal Bill of Rights, there's nothing about hunting and fishing, and yet North Carolina is bidding to be the 22nd state to have that in its state constitution. Uh, on its face, it says that the people shall have a right to hunt, fish, and harvest wildlife. What that means in actual practical terms to follow from that has been a matter of much discussion and debate. People say, well, would this affect the ability to limit hunting on Sundays? Would this have an effect on on the different types of fishing practices? In the language of the amendment, it does not answer that question. It's, it provides some guidance, but it says the people shall have that right. So our best way of drawing this is to look at what's happened in other states, of the, the, the 21 other states that have adopted these. And for the most part, it has actually not been a frequent source of litigation. That is, some supporters might 
think that this would have big effects in terms of limiting certain types of restrictions. It has not had that effect so far. Uh, critics might similarly be look to other states and say, has this had big effect in terms of preventing wildlife conservation or other humane society restrictions? We haven't necessarily seen that either. Now, just because we haven't seen these effects in other states is, you know, we, we'll see what happens in North Carolina. But the chief supporters' arguments is this would be a bulwark against restrictions that might be put in place by humane society groups. The chief criticism is, it's rather vague phrasing and doesn't really tell you exactly what this will do, and it will have to be worked out by courts in a way that's uncertain. And that's kind of a recurring theme we're going to see with these is the vague phrasing and the idea that many of these might end up in court and the idea that people might be voting on something which then might get fleshed out after the election, and essentially they might be voting on something that they didn't mean to vote for. Uh, but let's move on to the next one. So the second one is, and this is, goes by two names that you'll hear about this. One is a victim's rights amendment, and another is a Marcy's Law amendment. And those both refer to the same thing. So right now, again, the U.S. Constitution does not have anything about victims' rights in the U.S. Constitution. But 34 states have adopted victims' rights amendments to their state constitution, and North Carolina is one of those states. North Carolina has, since 1996, had a victims' rights provision in its state constitution. From the 1980s and 1990s, there was a wave of victims' rights amendments. Now what we're seeing is a second wave of victims' rights amendments, which are called Marcy's Law amendments, that seek to strengthen, tighten, clarify, expand existing victims' rights measures. So North Carolina is one of six states that's voting on a Marcy's Law Amendment this year. Well, in terms of what exactly it does, what does it mean to strengthen, to tighten, expand? Well, it is it, 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 it a lot of very specific things. It would expand slightly the range of offenses that could be subject to victims' rights enforcement. It slightly expands the ability of victims and their families to be notified of changes in the status of a person who, uh, of a defendant. It gives uh, a little more rights to a victim to be actually be able to be heard at some of these proceedings. The best way to put it is there are a number of victims' rights protections that are already in place in the North Carolina Constitution as of 1996. This would expand slightly in some particular ways those existing protections, and it would set out a procedure, it would direct the legislature to set out a procedure by which victims and, and their families could access these rights. So that sounds like it might be a less controversial one, one that might not get as much pushback and maybe is a little bit clearer. This one has, 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 has not gotten quite the level of, 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 of opposition as some of the other amendments, but that's not to say it hasn't gotten opposition. Uh, there are one of the concerns that people would raise is, does this increase the costs and burdens on prosecutors and prosecutors' offices because they would then have to be notifying victims, they would have to be making provision for victims to be able to, uh, to be heard at various proceedings. And so it is the case in some states, a half dozen states have already adopted these Marcy's Law amendments, these second wave of victims' rights, and there have been some, some reports of added costs and added hirings that need to be done. In fact, South Dakota, which just approved a Marcy's Law amendment two years ago, came back this year and tweaked it slightly in response to some of the concerns about added costs and benefits. But it is the case that there, this really isn't a case where there's a philosophical disagreement about the Victims' Rights Amendment. It's more a practical question about is, um, are the costs and burdens too significant. Uh, so let's move now to the amendment that, that would uh, kind of 
cap the income tax in North Carolina. Uh, while this isn't exactly what we've seen uh, pushed for in some other places, this kind of originated as something called a, a taxpayer's bill of rights, and, and this is a version of that. So tell us a little bit about that. So North Carolina currently has in its state constitution says the maximum allowable income tax rate on individuals and corporations is 10%. That's written in the North Carolina constitution. The amendment on the ballot this November would reduce that maximum allowable rate to 7%. So right now, the income tax rate, the top income tax rate, the flat income tax rate, the top for individuals, it's 5.5%, and it's slated to move to 5.25%. It's a flat rate right now. So if this approves, it would not have any immediate effect of reducing anyone's income tax rate, and that's probably something to be clear about. This would reduce the maximum rate to 7%, and the current rate is below that. So what we're talking about is prospective effects, and there there is significant debate about what effects this might have in the future. It doesn't have any immediate effect on tax rates. But what would happen, this would certainly prevent, if the legislature saw a need or an interest in the future in setting a tax rate of some kind for some people at greater than 7%, this amendment and its passage would prohibit that from happening. So supporters of that see that is the benefit of the amendment to lock in certain low-income tax rates and say, well, you can never go above, much above where we currently are. The most you could go above would be 7%. But the critics raise the question of, well, what if we want, what if there are a bunch of projects that are, that we have that we want to undertake in terms of roads, in terms of schools, in terms of teachers, in terms of school buildings, in terms of take your pick in terms of projects? Might this in the future hamstring or constrain the legislature's ability to actually raise revenue to meet these needs? Now, uh, it, it, the, we should be clear the income tax is only one of the possible taxes that is out there for raising revenue. So suppose the legislature in the future said, well, we do need to raise more revenue to take on certain projects. Well, one option would be to raise the income tax. They could only raise that to 7%. Suppose they said, well, we still really do have a lot of needs and interests. There would be the other possibility of raising other kinds of taxes, such as sales tax or even uh, or other kinds of revenues. Critics uh, are, are concerned about the constraining effects on it generally, and they're also concerned that uh, that perhaps some of these other tax and revenue sources are less healthy sources than the than the income tax in in that way, and and that the, they would prefer if you have to raise the revenues, raise it through the income tax. So that's in a nutshell um, what, what 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 some of the arguments are. There maybe there's more to be talked about there, but that's some of the issues there. Okay, the next three are, are more controversial ones, while the, the income tax one is somewhat controversial as well. But um, let's start with voter ID. This is something that we've heard talk, talked about for years in North Carolina and elsewhere. They're trying to make it happen. Tell us what it does. And so I should be clear, on one hand, this is a simple, simply stated amendment. It's not as long as a few of the others out there. It would say that photo ID shall be required for voting and the legislature can make exceptions to that if they want. Several things. Just the approval of this amendment would not actually decide what types of ID would be required, what exceptions might be allowed. That would follow, and the legislature would have to come in another session, would actually have to write a statute law to set out the details of which IDs are required, are there exceptions to be allowed. The next thing to be said is, is that there are at least two sources of possible legal challenge to a voter ID law. 
One of them is a federal court challenge based on federal constitutional and statutory provisions. In fact, the last time that NorthCon tried to pass a voter ID law in 2013, it was struck down by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals as part of a broad-based package of voter changes. The passage of this constitutional amendment on the state level would have no effect on on any federal court proceedings. Right now, the last time this came up before federal court, federal court said that the voter ID provision was not allowed. So just the passage of this amendment would, first of all, necessitate passage of a statute to set out the particular details, and it would then be subject to federal constitutional challenge. The one thing that this would be seen as accomplishing is, is the, to the extent that there might be state court challenges or state constitutional objections to a voter ID law, passage of this amendment would insulate a voter ID requirement from challenge in the state courts. But again, you still have to have a statute writing out the details, and there would certainly be challenges on federal constitutional grounds that would have to pass muster. And then uh, let's just go in order. Let's talk about the, the amendment related to judges. The judicial election is the longest title, on, and it's the one that has probably provoked the most questions. Uh, some of the, many of them quite provoke pro and con arguments. Is this a good or a bad thing? But the judicial election amendment is the most likely to, to elicit questions of what exactly is it doing. So I should say, on one hand, it's limited um, to just midterm vacancies in the courts. And I say that because um, if someone serves an eight-year term on the state Supreme Court, if someone finishes their term, that position is filled in the same way that it always is. That is, the voters elect the person for another eight-year term. So the first thing we said is this deals with a very specific case of what happens if somebody's in the middle of an eight-year term and they step down from the bench. They create a vacancy midterm. Right now, the governor is empowered to choose that position, the person to fill that vacancy. And that person serves until the next legislative election, and then there's a popular vote. This amendment would change that, and the governor would no longer be the key actor. The simple answer is the legislature would now be the dominant actor in choosing the replacement for that midterm vacancy. Now, the legislature, there's other people involved in the process. There would be a merit selection commission that would be set up that would identify certain names. Those names would then go to the legislature, and the legislature would forward two names to the governor who would be required to choose from one of them. But if we really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it right now, midterm vacancies in the courts are filled by the governor. Under this amendment, the legislature would be the key actor in filling midterm vacancies. There are some other details that we could get into right now. Midterm vacancies, the person that fills that serves until the next legislative election, which could at most be two years away because the election is held every two years. This would allow someone to serve until the next succeeding legislative election so they could actually serve if they fill a midterm vacancy. They might be able to serve a maximum of four years in a term. But that, in a nutshell, is what this does. And again, to very oversimplify, who fills midterm vacancies now? The governor alone. Who would fill midterm vacancies under this situation? Well, there'd be a merit commission. The governor would have the final word, but the legislature would be the key actor. And since uh, Governor Cooper was elected, there have been many perceived attempts by the part of the Republican uh, majority in the General Assembly to limit his powers. And, and this amendment, along with the next one we're going to talk about, are kind of adding to people's fears that the General Assembly is trying to weaken the governor. So, so talk a little bit about that and, and about the, the next the final amendment. So the final amendment on the ballot is, 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 um, deals with the Elections and Ethics 
board, which is right now, it's a statutory board. It's created by statute. It, long practice in, in North Carolina history is who gets to control that board. And they've long said, well, somebody's got to control it. Whichever party wins the governorship gets a majority on the election board. Well, when a Democratic governor was elected and a Republican legislature, the Republican legislature had some second thoughts about that, about allowing the governor's party to have a majority and then control on the board. So they set up a situation where they said, well, how about let's have an even number of members where Republicans get half the appointees and, and, and Democrats get half the appointees, and let's, let's let the legislature be the one to handle the appointing, not the governor. So two differences between the old system and the new system. One is no longer would be the governor be the one appointing. The legislature would have the key role. And two, no longer would you have the majority on that wielded by the governor's party. It would be evenly balanced. Now, these the election board legislation the last two years has gone through a number of legal challenges. And in fact, just a week ago, a state court struck down the uh, existing elections board member. This would be seen as an effort to go to the people and say, would you approve of this particular election board? And not only do you approve of it, do you want to put it in the Constitution? So this would be the way it would be going forward. Clearly, it would reduce the governor's ability to wield influence in two ways. No longer would the governor have a majority on the board as as, as it long been established, but also the legislature would be the dominant one in terms of, the, uh, of, of who would actually be on this eight-person board, four selected by Democratic members of the legislature, four selected by Republican members. And so at, at one time, m mainly when this was first introduced, there was some question of whether the impacts of this would be even broader. That may be... Uh, the governor's appointment powers to all sorts of boards and commissions would transfer to the General Assembly, but that has been has been changed and clarified. No, that's that's a very important point. The, originally, the six amendments were put forward, and they were subject to a number of legal challenges. And the legal challenges were presumably about is the ballot language, is the title that will appear on the ballot, is that a full and accurate description of what's on there, and a state panel, a court panel, actually held that two of the amendments, the Judicial Vacancies Amendment and the Election Board Amendment, the titles were not full and accurate and perhaps even misleading, the judges said. They allowed, though, the legislature to go back to the drawing board and said you could draw up new titles if you wanted to. Well, in regard to both the Judicial Vacancies Amendment and the uh, Board's Amendment, the legislature decided we're not only going to rewrite the title, but we're actually going to change the substance of what was put on. And in the case of the Elections Board Amendment, that was originally a much broader amendment. It would have actually altered the responsibility and the power of the legislature and governor, not only for the Election Board, but for boards across the, uh, the government. That was the original version that was put forward. Once the court said this is not going to pass muster, the legislature pulled back and said, okay, what we will go forward with now is limited solely to the election and ethics board and without an effect on, say, education or other types of boards. Just really quick for people who aren't as familiar with the elections board, why does it matter who has the majority on there and who picks? So it's the Elections and Ethics Enforcement Board, and so the main job that it's done is every decision a county has to make is where will we have early voting sites? Where will we have uh, sites on voting on Election Day? Those are inherently controversial and debated issues. Uh, certain folks say, I would like to have a, a, a early voting site here. I would like to have six early voting sites. I'd like to have four. 
the state board of elections is the one that ultimately resolves disputes that come up in the counties about these kinds of matters. It's also the case that there are questions of ethics enforcement. Suppose someone says, I believe there's a campaign finance violation and a malpractice or mispractice by a particular candidate. That would eventually come up to the state board of elections and ethics enforcement. But probably the best way to put things is right now when people are going to early voting or getting ready to vote on election day, those decisions about where people vote and, 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 and these precincts are ones that ultimately can be resolved by the state board of elections. And so you mentioned that it is surprising to have six amendments on the ballot for one election. Uh, can you speculate about why you think this is happening now? I mean, some of the cases, and I should say it is definitely surprising in North Carolina. North Carolina has had five amendments on a given election on three prior occasions, one in the early 1980s and twice in the 1970s. But for the most part, there's been, say, one or two amendments per year. I should say in that regard, there's a number of other states around the country that they're just used to having a number of amendments. Florida will have 12 amendments on the ballot this year. Colorado has nine amendments. Louisiana will have six, uh, uh, six amendments as well. So there's certain states in which this is just a kind of a regular practice. North Carolina has, been, um, has not usually had that many. There's probably uh, uh, two main uh, uh, kind of uh, explanations for the amendments that you see on the ballot this time. One is there's been, a, be in re, as a result of recent controversies and debates and struggles between the legislature and the executive branch, there is an effort to resolve these struggles or at least put them before the people in that sense and to, and presumably by the legislature to, um, to, to get an upper hand in those struggles by, by, by having approval of those amendments. That's, uh, that's the best way to explain both the Judicial Vacancies Amendment and the Election Board Amendment. Others are, 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 as much as anything, they're, they're part of national movements that have come up. And the main question is, um, this would best explain the hunting and fishing amendment, which follows along with 20 other states that just happen to have passed these in recent decades. It's just coming to North Carolina now. The Marcy's Law Victims' Rights Amendment is also part of a recent movement, and that's one of six amendments on the ballot across the country. And then there's just some other amendments that just, just, just have bubbled up. They've been in the hopper for a few years, and the tax amendment, which has gone through various uh, provisions, um, and then the voter ID amendment. So various explanations, um, some of them meant to, to resolve, intended to resolve disputes between the legislature and the governor. Some of them intended to lock in current policies, such as the tax amendment, and others part of these national movements in regard to victims' rights and hunting and fishing rights. Well, John, thanks so much for talking with me. I enjoyed it. We've been talking with John Dynan. He's a professor of politics at Wake Forest University. And I'm Alex Granados, senior reporter for Education NC, and you've been listening to Ed Talk. Thanks for listening.